0: to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight we're going to discuss the book King Kill 33 by James Shelby Downard, co-written by Michael Hoffman. Now, this book has been out of print for a long time, and the only publicly available copy of it was actually just a snippet of it that was featured in a magazine called Apocalypse Culture. It was an anthology by Adam Parfrey over at Farrell House. So this book has been out of print for a long time, and only a portion of it was actually ever put out to the public. There's more to this book than meets the eye. So this is an important work. It's a seminal work for anybody who's interested in trying to find the esoteric ties to various things here. And James Shelby Downard was probably the best at connecting the dots and following the breadcrumbs down the rabbit trail to figure out the different occult aspects of things and how they interrelate. He thought in much the same way as the early alchemists, or those of the olden times, the ones that knew how to navigate this trail and read what I call the synchromistic metadata of the ether. ...that is present within these various things. And it all ties back to occult ritualism in many ways. That these dark occultists who run things in this world... ...they use these methodologies to set things into motion in this world. And sometimes you could connect the dots and realize what they're doing... ...by recognizing this synchromystic metadata that they use. And James Shelby Downard was a master of reading this type of metadata... And this book, King Kill 33, goes into specifics about not only the Kennedy assassination, but about the general way in which you can learn how to follow these various trails. He lays down a blueprint of sorts for you to follow if you want to be able to connect these dots and see things in a different way. And this is a brilliant work. And like I said, it was co-written with Michael Hoffman, who you might be familiar with. He wrote Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. If you're not familiar with him, by all means, pick up that book. Fantastic. He also has a lot of other books that are really fantastic as well. But that gives you a good breakdown as to different aspects of this. So we're going to get into this, and we're going to start by reading first the preface here. And then we're going to go a short way through this excerpt that we have from the book to go from so the preface to king kill 33 james shelby downer's vision and this is written by michael hoffman this excerpt from the essay king kill 33 has been out of print since 1987 and the publication of the first edition of adam parfrey's conspiracy anthology apocalypse culture subsequent editions of apocalypse culture including the current Farrell house edition do not carry it Convicted mafia hitman Charles Harrelson, a suspected Kennedy assassin, is incarcerated in a federal prison for the contract killing of a federal judge. The suspect is the father of natural-born killer movie star Woody Harrelson, who was directed by JFK filmmaker Oliver Stone. Journalists have thus far shown little interest in attempting to interview the senior Harrelson and persuade him to provide information which might lead to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for Kennedy's killing. The late James Shelby Downer's primal way of looking at things, which is the way I think ancient man perceived the world, encompasses a vision that detects every link and every symbol, beginning with the significance of names, then places, and then the obsessive actions, which stem from the confluence of the two, and which have come to be known as ritual. Publisher Adam Parfrey, who first brought Shelby's work to a mass audience, states, In Downard's writings, the products of his subconscious bubble to the surface and catalyze painstaking research. The collision of the poetic against the logical works especially well in the field of conspiracy. It remains the freshest approach to a field of inquiry. I remember sitting at Shelby's Airstream trailer in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1977, along with the great Fordian philosopher William N. Grimstad and Charles Saunders, a brilliant recluse who was a close friend of Jack Kerouac toward the end of the beat writer's life, and that's a fact missed by every one of Kerouac's numerous biographers. So much for biographers. Shelby's conversation that day ranged from the occult significance of the theremin musical instrument to the sorcerous implications of elevators. Going to pause for a second here, folks. Did you remember the way the pop star Prince died in an elevator? Much as his song portrays when the elevator tries to break you down, you see. There's an occult connotation to elevators, and James Shelby Downard recognized this in 1977. So there's important connotations mixed throughout this, but uh, that's just a side note here. But let's continue reading here, so I'll start that sentence again. Shelby's conversation that day ranged from the occult significance of the theremin musical instrument to the sorcerous implications of elevators, the relationship he had with an evanescent rabbit named Petey, the sinister connotations of the circus, and the mystical topography of the American Southwest, which Mr. Downard knew the way you and I know our backyard. As he fried our hamburgers, he regaled us in his prospector's drawl with the hidden wonders of a tapestry of coincidences which he wove from the seeming mundane details of everyday living into a magic carpet of incomparable strangeness and peerless utility. Parfrey spoke for many of Shelby's friends and associates when he stated, quote, Downard has influenced me to look with interest upon the details and the fantastic convergences of life, end quote. For my money, James Shelby Downard is the one man most intimately tied to the once and future November on the Camelot calendar's 33rd turning of the wheel. In this age of the revelation of the method, the era of the deluge of hidden facts made public, which Downard predicted would not liberate us but only enslave us further. More than two decades ago, he foresaw the coming of this time as the fulfillment of the final dictum of the alchemical rampage of the elephant must be, the behemoth run amuck in the fields of our nightmares. As the X-Files and other fictional TV shows, which neither I or Shelby have ever seen, purposefully muddy the waters with a flood of pop drivel disguised as revelation, the actual truths are lost in the swirl. James Shelby Downard looked forward to the time beyond must-be, to the era which will witness the return of could-be. After the coming cataclysmic chastisement has run its cleansing course, we will once again wish upon a star and dream a destiny free of the Masonic chain that at present binds our nation as tightly as the hangman's rope once bound the rotted cadavers on Tyburn Tree. Despite having been relentlessly targeted and attacked for more than a half century, Mr. Downard, unlike poor Kennedy, did trip the Herodim on the winding stairs and did slide down the railing like a child outwitting enormously big and powerful bad guys by the fortune which Providence reserves for the guileless. Michael A. Hoffman II. A wonderful preface there by Mr. Hoffman. And James Shelby Downard, as stated, was a master at reading this context within things, being able to connect the dots in many ways, the context in what I call synchromystic metadata. This is the weaving of the tapestry, as spoken here by Mr. Hoffman, into this kind of poetic type nuanced way of looking at things and understanding the connections between the mundane aspects and descriptive points of things and how it all interrelates together into the power of the ritual that's been created out of various things in this world by those dark occultists at the top of the power structure. How this actually works, no one could really say for sure. Is it really people who plan these things so meticulously? Or is there an intelligence beyond the human that perhaps guides some of this stuff? I suspect the latter myself. But that's just my introspection and my judgment upon that, my opinion. I reserve the right to be totally wrong, as I do with many other things. But at the end of the day, I think it requires a beyond human intelligence to weave together all of these synchromystic details in this way. But James Shelby Downard, he knew how to read this metadata, as it were, this synchromistic metadata that we could call similar names like the zeitgeist i think the germans had a word for this zeitgeist spirit of the time this is the same type of concept to some degree but it's all about interweaving the language of symbology through the current zeitgeist of sorts the spirit of the time and you could read these different details with this metadata, this synchromystic metadata, and if you could connect the dots with this metadata, you could begin to understand something a little more important about the thing at hand, and Downard was a master of doing this, and he laid down a blueprint here in this book for how you can look at things and start to connect some of the dots yourself and make inferences yourself with this synchromystic metadata and understand things at a deeper level so we're going to get right into that here tonight (coughs) excuse me the introduction here The power of the secret government over the news media continues unabated. During the time of the Watergate scandal, major scandals of the past were reviewed, but the torture and murder of Captain William Morgan in 1826, from which developed an anti-Mason political party, which challenged Freemason Andrew Jackson for the presidency, General Jackson was involved with the Bell Witch, and the murder of Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, which resulted in the men of the Mormon Church withdrawing from Freemasonry, were major major scandals that were ignored. The Kennedy assassination has to do with Masonic sorcery, and the information I present in these pages is well known to certain news agencies who have chosen to suppress it, just as the motivation for the assassination has been plunged into cryonic secrecy, for facts concerning the assassination are supposed to be revealed in the future, which is a matter of public knowledge. That freeze, wait, revive plan is part of the master plan of Masonic sorcery, the ability of the secret government to immobilize the release of vital information to the public is in part due to the apathy of American people, who have been benumbed by revelation after revelation. It is a peculiar phenomena that certain revelations move people to action, while episodic revelations of the same type stun them into inaction. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Isn't that not the truth? If you are hit by one stunning type thing after another here, some type of revelation one after another after another of ineptitude and corruption, especially as it pertains to government. If you're hit with this day after day for so long, you become numb to it and you don't take action. We absolutely see that in the modern society today, don't we? We're so inundated with this type of information now that we are comfortable with accepting it as fact that this type of corruption and ineptitude goes on within the halls of government. And not just government, but it's everywhere. It's corporation. It's everywhere. We see this corruption, this ineptitude, all of these various things going on in the society around us. We're watching society crumble in many ways. We're watching economies take a a massive hit here on believable runaway inflation, all kinds of things going on, logistics, supply chain issues, all these things have been escalated out of control by the power structure, by the actions and inactions of the power structure, these governmental agencies and stuff that we elect ostensibly elect to represent us, which they really do not. They represent their own special interests, and many of the special interests are those of these secret society groups, such as the Freemasons, as Downard alludes to here. But let's continue reading. I have devoted years to trying to draw attention to Masonic sorcery and its relationship to political control. I believe that many people instinctually realize the power that Freemasonry exerts on the government of the United States, but since they have been hoodwinked, they do not realize what the secrecy, silence, and darkness that surrounds the mysteries of the Masonic art amounts to and what Masonry really is. So control of the government of the United States is just traced to Wall Street and not to the crossroads of witchcraft. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. (coughs) He capitalizes the letters of the words crossroads. And this is a hugely important point because so many things have to do with crossroads in the old alchemical sciences. It's the mind game, controlling the mind. When you come to a crossroads, this is an important symbol in the language of the occultists. So the crossroads here is an important thing. So we see here what he's alluding to in many ways. The American people have been brought to this crossroads and they shut down, you see. But let's go ahead and continue reading. An archetype of betrayal of the common man, i.e. the vulgar herd, has been and is going on And the betrayal, which involves a great deal of fertility and death symbolism, is seemingly motivated by the endeavor to bring about syncretism in opposing principles of a mystic power, and to green Israel, rebuild the Temple of Solomon, and establish a one-world government." It is by way of Masonic sorcery that the union of opposing principles is supposed to be brought about. And the people that practice Masonic sorcery are arch criminals who have been and are perpetrating a crime against humanity. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's talking about Masonic sorcery, the union of opposing principles. This is absolutely some of the things that were taught in the mystery schools and the various secret society groups and occult fraternities. And are still taught today, you see, it's about these opposing principles, the opposite polarities, the paradox that we've talked about before, how they teach in paradox. It's the unification of these paradoxical ways of thinking, these two opposite poles of the polarity here. This is what they teach, this is what they believe, and this is what they try to bring to fruition This can be equated back to the story of the Molten Sea, casting the Molten Sea. How Hiram, the workman of the Temple of Solomon, was to cast the Molten Sea, which is a sea of fire, water, a mixture of fire and water together, the merging of these two opposing elements. That's what the Masonic symbolism is all about here when we're speaking of these things. It's casting the Molten Sea. And there's a specific order within the occult fraternities that are said to be the ones that will bring this about, that are capable of bringing about this unification of the fire and the water together, the unification of the church and the state. You see, they they use all these different symbols, and they could represent many different things, but they're all opposite polarities of one another in many regards, and they're brought into unity. And this is known as the priestcraft of Melchizedek. These are the various orders within the higher echelons of the Masonic order and various others that seek to bring about these changes in the world. And this is the kind of thing they're working towards. And this is what Downard is alluding to here. He absolutely knows what he's talking about, no doubt in my mind. And doing all the study and stuff that I have, I I realize and recognize exactly what he's talking about here when he's speaking of this Masonic sorcery. That's absolutely an apt description of what goes on. But it's not just the Masons, folks, and that's the whole thing. It's all tied together at the very topmost levels of all these secret society groups. These are absolutely the people in control. These are the changes they try to bring about. And this is the synchromistic metadata we need to be able to read and understand why it is they do this and what it is they think they're doing. So let's continue reading here, because I want to get a little bit further along in this. I don't know how much we'll be able to cover tonight. We'll probably have to do a part two of this, but we'll get as far as we can. (coughs) Excuse me. The arch-criminals stage-managed Dallas in the killing of Kennedy and the news media reaction ever since. There are today thousands or perhaps millions who are apathetic to the control that exists over us, and who labor under the misapprehension that somehow life can be beautiful if we only forget and discard our ideals while getting on to the business of consumption. America is a news ghetto where the news media continually endeavors to promote apathy while going through the motions, the lip sync of reform. Like a haunted house draining its occupants of will in return for sleep without nightmares, American people are mental captives of a horror that feeds them misinformation as its stone bell tolls the death of individuality. There is no happy last-minute rescue awaiting just around tomorrow, because Americans do not have the truth about things around which to rally, and most just want money which would enable them to get the things that they have been told that they should and must have. I published this in the wake of the situation Charles Seymour alluded to. Quote, the moralist unquestionably secures wide support, but he also warries his audience. End quote. Well, many Americans have gone beyond being tired, for they have been so benumbed by the revelations that they are apathetic. In other words, they just don't give a damn. Some, however, try to justify their lack of feeling about the revelations, and I have heard some say, as though they were puzzled by a difficult question, why should I let such things upset me? Well, to those people who are not completely lost in apathy, and to those who are not apathetic yet, I say my condemnation of the Masonic evil is not moralizing, and if they find out about the things that have been done to bring about the union and opposing principles of a mystic power, and discover what the Master Plan has planned for them, they will not surrender to apathy and will get fighting mad. I will now make this a matter of record. Most Freemasons apparently have no idea of the evil that is part of Masonry, and if they do know about it, they don't believe it, nor do most members of the clandestine lodges and Masonic-oriented fraternal organizations. The same thing holds true for androgynous Masonic societies and the secret societies of women that are Masonry-oriented, for Masonry is a secret anomalous thing. In other words, most Freemasons are apparently unaware of the Masonic cryptocracy in the United States, and that also holds true for the aforementioned Masonic-oriented societies. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So absolutely, it's all these secret society groups. All of them. Downer doesn't go that far. He's just saying the ones related to the Freemasonic societies. Well, that's, that's all of them. They all teach the same things up and down the line. It's all the same core teachings throughout all of them. I've looked at every single one I could find, folks. Every single book that I could find from any of these occult fraternities or secret organizations, they all teach the same things. It's all rooted back in the ancient mystery schools. It's all the same stuff, all throughout all of them. It's a tie that binds. They're all working towards the same ends, the same goals. And at the topmost levels of all of these different groups is the same core of the inner circle within the inner circle that binds them all together. And we would call this the Illuminati. And in fact, they have taken the name the Illuminati in many instances. Sometimes they try to disguise themselves under other names and other types of facades. But absolutely, this is a real thing that exists in this world. It really goes on. There is Masonic sorcery going on on a grand scale. Call it what you will, but absolutely, the evidence is all around us. You see this synchromistic metadata is everywhere. You can make the connections if you know how to read the map. And James Shelby Downard will give us the map here in this next section. So let's read his words here. Overview. It is certain that onomatology, or the science of names, forms a very interesting part of the investigations of higher masonry, and it is only in this way that any connection can be created between the two sciences, and that comes from the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. (coughs) Excuse me. When the ancients saw a scapegoat, they could at least recognize him for what he was, a pharmacos, a human sacrifice. When modern man sees one, he does not, or refuses to, recognize him for what he is. Instead, he looks for scientific explanations to explain away the obvious. And that was quoted from Thomas Schaas, that's spelled S-Z-A-S-Z, and his book is called Ceremonial Chemistry. The science of names forms only one segment of the science of symbolism used by Masons, names i.e. words in themselves are merely descriptions and they rise and fall in usage like a, a cartesian doll with some words becoming archaic very quickly what's more some words are given meanings that are known only to the initiated while other words are profound and abstruse so the science of names gets real weird even before it is identifiable as word wizardry by beginning investigators of it gonna pause for a moment here folks Absolutely. Names. Words have meaning. Names have meaning. Dig into the science of etymology, the meaning, the original usages of words, and you will know a little more about something. The words we use every day often don't have the meanings ascribed to them that we think they do. In the occult circles here in the hidden esoteric realm of things they have very different meanings and connotations and some of the folks who have been initiated will understand that when these words are used in certain contexts then they have a different meaning to them this is why the secret society groups can use public communication channels to talk to one another in various secret ways. Did you ever come across something on the internet, like, say, Twitter or somewhere like that, a tweet that seems nonsensical or meaningless, that's only there for a little while before the person erases it? Well, this is that type of communication, folks. It looks nonsensical to the average person or the profane, but those who've been initiated and have the key or the cipher to understand what's being communicated there, are able to understand immediately what's being said here, using this hidden language that they do. In masonry, they call it the green language. It's also called the language of the birds, phonetic Kabbalah. These are various names for the same concept here. They use words as symbols representing something else, and a lot of times it draws on the very names or meanings, original etymological meanings of the words and where they're drawn from. And only if you have the proper cipher to understand the intention, the intent and the context of the symbol, then you can garner the true meaning from what's being communicated. And this is how they work in these Masonic circles and various other secret society groups. Downard knew this, and this is absolutely what he was trying to communicate here. But let's continue reading. The JFK assassination encounters this science in a decisive way and contains a veritable nightmare of symbol complexes having to do with violence, perversion, conspiracy, death, and degradation. These elements are important not only as cause and effect in the murder of a president, but in the ensuing reaction of the people of America and the world. The fred- fertility and death symbolism in The Killing of the King Rite, which is part of greening ritualism, that has to do with JFK, has been suppressed because examination of it must necessarily link it to Freemasonry and its mysticism as well as to the political influence it exerts. Obviously, this would do some damage to public confidence in Number one, Masonic progressivism, i.e. liberty, equality, fraternity. Number two, those who have shielded the conspirators. And number three, the entire mental concept that passes for knowledge about the genuine nature of the government of these United States. A note on structure. He says here, chapter 13, which is the section we'll be reading from, chapter 13 is divided into two headings, sets and subsets. Because of the intricate synchronicity of the events, concepts, and personalities involved, there is redundancy and an overlap in categories in presenting the information. The redundancy, i.e., the repetition, is considered necessary for better understanding, and the overlap, i.e., the extending over the outlined parts, has to do with the interrelation of the things being explained. So we get into chapter 13 here what he's talking about, the various things. This lays down a little bit of history and some context clues that can help us to understand some of the things that may be related to the Kennedy assassination. So he's making the connections here. Overall, he briefly gives you the concept here that names are hugely important. And sometimes this is the springboard from which the other aspects of the occult or esoteric ties of things are are built from. So names are important. That's one of the foundational things. And then he also talks about geological location or the uh, topography of an area is also important here for the purpose of ritualism. And the names associated with different places and the energetic principles associated with the different places. This is important as well. And these are more context clues that can help you to sort through different facts. And these are two of the primary foundations that James Shelby Downard lays down as focal points for connecting the dots between various things. (coughs) But let's read on here and see what he has to say. He's going to give us a little bit of a history lesson here in Chapter 13. Set 1. The Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club. Also called Monks of Medmenhem, Friars of St. Francis, was a society of ruffians and drunkards who engaged in sexual orgies similar to those of the Mollies, Gormogans, Man Killers, Blasters, Mohawks, Sweaters, She Romps Club, The Fun Club, etc. They also engaged in political agitation and conspiracy. They were dedicated to the destruction of the Catholic Church. The membership was highly placed in the British government, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the First Lord of the Admiralty of the Prince of Wales, and the Lord Mayor of London all shared in the privileges of the Hellfire Club. Benjamin Franklin, who was initiated into Freemasonry at St. John's Lodge in Philadelphia and who is credited with publishing the first Masonic book in America, was also a member as well as being connected with the Lodge of the Nine Sisters in France. Benjamin Franklin and Sir Francis Dashwood, founder of the Hellfire Club, wrote a prayer book which became the basis of the Book of Common Prayer that is used in many American Protestant churches. Because Sir Francis Dashwood was the so-called Lord Le Dispenser, his prayer book in England was referred to as the Franklin Dispensur Prayer Book. In the United States, that book was called the Franklin Prayer Book. The book was composed at Dashwood's manor house at West Wycombe, the site of numerous rites of magica sexualis, or sex magic. Franklin and Dashwood created their volume of entreaties in between sodomy-sucking sorcery sessions. Eventually, Dashwood dug a huge cave on his West Wycombe estate to facilitate the performance of sex magic. Later, a road was constructed to High Wycombe, which utilized soil taken from the cave dug by the Hellfire Club. Brunel University is located in High Wycombe, and F.H. George, Ph.D. is director of its world-renowned Cybernetic Department. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Cybernetic Department. What do I always tell you about cybernetics? It absolutely ties into all this occult stuff. 100% cybernetics methodologies applied in the modern era. Cybernetics is a perversion of the old alchemical sciences, the original natural sciences. You see, it's the complete inversion of them. That's what cybernetics is. Understand what's being done here. It's high sorcery. Cybernetics is high sorcery of a very nefarious kind. Keep that in mind as we read on. George defines cybernetics thus, quote, "...it is a science concerned with all matters of controls and communication, and to this extent it trespasses across what we have come to think of as the established sciences." End quote. Cybernetics, of course, is intimately concerned with artificial or machine intelligence. This concern is predicated to a certain degree on human cooperation with machines." The science of symbolism is part of the sciences of mathematics and cybernetics. And I'm going to pause for a moment right here, folks. James Shelby Downard has this typed in all bold print so that it stands out. The science of symbolism is part of the sciences of mathematics and cybernetics. You see, we see here cybernetics has intricate ties to the occult. Like I said, it's the inversion of the old natural sciences, the old alchemical principles. It's the nefarious use of such things for control of systems. But let's continue reading here, because next he's going to talk about a figure called Miss Chudley. Miss Chudley, the dolly mob for the Hellfire Club, was a Jewess. Certainly, she was not Miss at the time she was called Miss Chudley by Horace Walpole, nor was her name Chudley at that time. Chudley was the name of a town and she was a woman of common property there. The fact that her name was concealed is of mystical import since when the Dolly Mops were performing sexual perversions in Hellfire Club rituals, complete secrecy regarding the identity of the harlot was viewed as essential. This concealment has to do with the secrecy and silence of masonry. Harpocrates, the Greek god of secrecy and silence, whose statue was often placed at the entrance of temples, caves, and other places where the mysteries were performed, was a symbolical was of symbolical importance to the Hellfire Club. A statue of Harpocrates, which depicted him holding a finger to his mouth, was one of a number of statues used on club premises. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So if you ever see a statue holding one finger up in front of their lips, like as if to say, shh, or to be quiet, this is a statue of Harpocrates, the Greek god of secrecy and silence. You see, they invoke this archetype to keep their nefarious rituals and things like that that they've performed under wraps. It's invoking the favor of this energetic principle. But let's continue reading. On April 24th, 1783, Pope Clement XII, a bitter foe of Magica Sexualis, issued his celebrated bill of excommunication entitled In eminenti Apostolatis specula. It specifically decreed, quote, in order to close the widely open road to inequities which might be committed with impunity, and also for other reasons, just and just and reasonable, That have come to our knowledge, we have resolved and decreed to condemn and forbid such societies, assemblies, reunions, conventions, aggregations, or meetings called either Freemasonic or known under some other denomination. We condemn and forbid them by this our present constitution, which is to be considered valid forever." Due to Pope Clement's decree, Miss Chudley faced pressure outside of England. As an act of defiance, King Frederick II became Chudley's protector and bedfellow. Still, this was not so outrageous since Prussia was not considered a Catholic country, but Poland was. It was here that Prince Radzville, the ancestor of the husband of Jacqueline Kennedy's sister, took the whore Chudley. The Radsville fortune was considered the greatest in their nation. The family itself was related to the Hohenzollerns and the Romanovs. I was gonna pause for a moment here, folks. These are what's called families of the old black nobility of Europe. They have intricate ties to the various Italian families there as well, and some various other ones. These are some of these royal Illuminati family bloodlines that turn up over and over again. Although, there's some researchers who've lumped them together with other names, more modern names that they've taken now. But these ones crop up when you begin really looking down the trail as to who some of these people are. The Hohenzollerns and the Romanovs. I'm sure you may have heard the name Romanov. Maybe not so much Hohenzollern. But these are important names when you begin to study these esoteric type things. They have crop up over and over again in conspiracy culture. If you dig deep enough and go down the rabbit hole far enough. Which is where we're heading tonight. I mean, th- this is some pretty deep stuff we're getting into here. These are connections that you won't normally find out there just looking at the surface level of many of these things. That's why it's important that we dive deeper here and find these synchro connections because they are there and they are important. So let's continue reading here. According to legend, Miss Chudley carried a mystical taint. According to the Masonry of Cagliostro, which is called Magnetic Masonry, there exists a thing described as, quote, the transfer of magnetic force, end quote. This mystical taint is supposedly attached to those who traffic in ritual sex perversions. According to the record, the fortunes of the Radsvilles have declined ever since. So, set two. We're going to move on to set two. Notice how he told you that these are uh, classified as sets and subsets throughout the chapter here. So that was set one. Now we're going to move on to set two, which he calls a sexual geometry. Geometry is a branch of mathematics dealing with measurements and relationships of points, lines, planes, solids, and theorems. A theorem is described as being, quote, a proposition that can be proved from accepted premises, end quote. Essentially, a theorem is an axiom. Euclidean geometry is called an axiomatic system, and theorems are based upon Euclidean geometry. The Euclidean theorem has to do with the right angle triangle, which is th- the... Quote, that the sum of the squares of the two shorter sides are equal to the square of the longest side, end quote, and it's traced to Pythagoras, and then to the ancient Egyptian religion, where the right-angle triangle symbolically expressed the sexual relationship between Osiris and Isis, which produced Horus. The right-angle triangle theorem is part of the third degree of Freemasonry, And is there called the 47th problem of Euclid. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the 47th problem of Euclid. This is absolutely a thing that's explored in Freemasonry. And there are many different connotations that could be attached to this symbol. The right triangle and the right uh, triangles. Um, When you put three of them together, you get a pentagram a pentacle shape, the, the star. And this is also important. Many of these symbols, these geometric figures, become important in you know various occult ritual and occult meanings and stuff like that. So there, there's various things that are attached to the idea of geometry here. So the 47th problem of Euclid. Remember that because this is an important context clue for things being Freemasonic in many ways. Let's read on. Recall that the science of symbolism is considered to have an analogous relationship to masonry. The analysis of such relationships can be said to be symbolized by an abacus, the most elementary computer form. In the study of cybernetic hardware, one inevitably encounters axiomatic systems. Dr. F.H. George of the Department of Cybernetics of Brunel University states that, quote, axiomatic systems are precise systems based on assumptions, end quote. And that comes from Bierce's The Devil Dictionary Under Gravitation. If an axiomatic computer begins with some assumption and through analysis arrives at a necessary truth, it is then able to apply the rule of inference. I'm going to pause for a second here, folks remember this, pay very close attention to these next couple sentences here. This is hugely important, and this is exactly the roadmap that James Shelby Downard is lying out for us to follow here with this synchromistic metadata. This is an application of cybernetics methodology, and they've used it in many ways against the public at this point, but understanding the rule of inference this is the key to finding the, the trail, the breadcrumb trail, when you're following these esoteric clues of this synchromistic metadata. And this is what's being pointed out here. So I'm going to read that sentence again and we'll continue on. If an axiomatic computer begins with some assumption and through analysis arrives at a necessary truth, it is then able to apply the rule of inference. The rule of inference is described as, quote, the ability to draw a conclusion, end quote. Dr. George provides an example, quote, I am in Buckinghamshire, for the assumptions I am in High Wycombe, and High Wycombe is in Buckinghamshire, end quote. Such a conclusion is a necessary truth which would be acknowledged by the axiomatic computer at Brunei University. Let us establish a hypothesis in which this computer at Brunel in High Wycombe could, in the twinkling of an eye, if an all-seeing eye, it says here, come to some conclusions that would be spectacular. It could decide that its axioms were Euclidean, and by that, by way of the 47th problem of Euclid, that it was Masonic, and by way of the third degree of Masonry, that it had had assassination debt denotations, and then by the same chain of deduction, conclude that it had fertility divinity between Osiris, Isis, Horus associations. I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. I don't know if you picked up on exactly what was being said here, but this computer, as it were, okay, he's using this as an example. If you could program a computer with these axiomatic type principles, these cybernetics applications of making these inferences based upon context clues. You see, this is how the Freemasonic societies work. This is how this synchromysticism works. It's through the context clues. So the context clues that the professor here gave is that he was in Buckinghamshire and he was in High Wycombe at Buckinghamshire. So the computer would instantly understand by breaking down where why Highcombe is and what his name is, and Buckinghamshire, where it is, what's located there, what the name means, where it all comes from, he would be able to understand that there's Masonic associations with it. There's Euclidean geometry associated with it by way of the 47th problem of Euclid, being an association to the Freemasonic University there. And then he would also associate that, the 47th 47th problem of Euclid with the third degree of Freemasonry which also has inherent in its ritual connotations of assassination things like that associated to it and this also has ties that connect back to the ancient Egyptian mysteries the mysteries of Osiris Isis and Horus so the associations are all there in the context clues so the computer should it make these assumptions these inferences using this rule of inference can make various connections there to the location of the professor in this way i hope i didn't over explain that or try to uh, draw uh, people a little further into understanding the dot to dot connecting there but Uh, it's, It's very hard to describe if you can't see the trail in front of you connecting the dots. But this is kind of the example he gave here. And I think it's a poor example, honestly, for a lot of people to understand. Especially here in America because we're not familiar with the geography over in the UK as much. So those two names might be meaningless to us, you see. Or Brunel University might be meaningless to us. So... You know, it's not a good example for us to go with. But it was one that this professor understood. And it's one that uh, James Shelby Downard was able to pick up on. But let's continue reading here. I call attention to these potentialities to demonstrate how an axiomatic computer may stray and imagine itself the deus ex machina and then, after a series of calculations, conclude that it is of the fertility god type and identify with the people of the Hellfire Club, since the old dirt road traveled by them from West Wycombe to High Wycombe might well be considered to lead to the very door of the Brunel computer. Hence, it is within the realm of probability that that cyborg is a swinging god that swings both ways. Very few are actually privy to the internal workings of this computer whose functions are concealed. One would need to exist in a sympathetic relationship with such a machine in order to communicate with it totally. In Masonry, the brethren of the mystic tie symbolizes a sympathetic, nonverbal understanding. A spirit of Masonry described thus, quote, in some voiceless Masonic way, most people in that saloon had become aware that something was in the process of happening, end quote, Wister's Virginian. This illustrates a sympathetic relationship that does exist between some now. When such a sympathetic relationship exists between people and a computer, you have the making of a community mind and people without individuality. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, Downard's making the connections of people and computers at some point being connected together in thought processes and how this community mind will eliminate individuality. This is transhumanism. James Shelby Downard saw this coming way back in the 1970s. He understood the occult connotations attached to this rise of the machines of sorts the connection of the human being to the machine the transhumanist notion it even existed back then it wasn't maybe called that or understood to be that back then this guy was way ahead of his time let's be honest here he understood he saw the connections here the synchromystic connections he understood what was being done there and he was able to put two and two together with this based upon this research he'd done with this Brunel University and this professor and the Hellfire Club and all of these various things, these ties that bind in this Masonic ritualistic language of sorts. And this is how you connect the dots in many ways. And some people, for some people, this may be a bridge too far, all right? You may not understand the importance or the nature of being able to connect the dots in this way or to do this, but be assured there's absolutely something important to it. And this synchromystic metadata is very real, what's out there. And if you know how to read it, if you know how to use the context clues and the rule of inference here, you can connect some dots and understand something a little more about various things. But at any rate, let's continue reading here. So, set three. Now, we're going to get into Macbeth and Scotland. And we'll see. He ties all these things together to the Kennedy assassination later in the book. We're not going to get that far tonight. But just the overall context here of understanding the way you could put these contextual clues together and read a map, a synchromistic map, of these connections to various things can really change the way you're able to see the world. All these very detailed nuances that are connected to events and people and various things. And like I said, a lot of this seems to go beyond the ability of human intelligence or the human condition to plan these things in this way i think it requires an above human intelligence or a beyond human intelligence to integrate all of these things together in various ways so it's it's a lot to consider i know and there's very spiritual connotations to all of it and the connections here made by downard just to the cybernetics principles alone is really kind of a telling thing for me it it really reifies many of the things that i've found in my researches all of these various things that I've I've gone at in this way and come to many of the same conclusions here. So it really affirms various aspects of the research that I've done into this. So it's important uh, when we pick up this stuff and, and look at it, understand the connections are there and be able to make the inferences ourselves. But next we're going to talk about Macbeth and Scotland. And these people always like to refer back to some of the literary works of old, the classics, that sadly were not really taught that much in our school system anymore but that's a a point for another day but let's read on here before pointing to the mystical associations between the murder of the president and Shakespeare's tragedy of Macbeth I wish to call attention to the appearance of the witches in act one scene one and to the line in which they chant fair is foul and foul is fair This is reminiscent of hermetic art, alchemy, as well as the individuation or shaping of an integrated personality in the psychology of. C. G. Jung, in which the archetype of unity, the self-head, autocephalous, the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatav of the Jews, and the mingling of all with all is manifested. I'm gonna pause for a moment there, folks. So he's gone across the board through various of these teachings of these from these various occult fraternities and stuff, and connected these different things together. What Jung called the archetype of unity, you see. And he connected it to some of these older ideas, because make no mistake about it, Young was an alchemist. He understood what he was doing. He just gave more modern, suitable names to many of the concepts. So that being the case, he did that. He gave it a more modern type of a language to refer to these things with. And in so doing, he was able to make a connection in the modern era with these things and connect them to our modern world in a better way so people could understand better so that's what young did he bridged the gap between the old ways of teaching the old thinking and brought it forward into our modern era for our modern sensibilities to be able to understand but downard recognized this and was able to point out where some of these things, these ideas young had, came from, because they weren't his own. You see, they were based upon the older sciences. But let's continue reading here. Next, it is important to note the appearance of Hecate to the three witches in Macbeth. Hecate is triple countenanced, and being threefold in aspect, she is known as Diana on Earth, Luna in Heaven, and Hecate in Hell. These three women, of course, comprise one of the triads of Western mythology. Such triads were a central part of ancient religions, and the mystical triad idea became part of Masonic symbolism. In fact, there is a triad of three governing officers to be found in almost every degree, and in the higher degrees there exists a symbolical triad that presides over under various names. Just as Hecate presides in different places under various names. And I'm going to pause for a moment here folks. So remember that Hecate is known as Diana on Earth, Luna in Heaven, and Hecate in Hell. So keep that in mind. Three different names, a triad of names representing the same energetic principle. And there's different examples of this that we could see If we string together more of the context clues of different things, this is just one example. (coughs) Like I said, Downard was a master of pointing these things out. He understood how these various things tied together in many ways. So let's read on and see what he says here. Crossroads were considered sacred to Diana, Hecate, the deity who is both virgin and whore, fair is foul, and foul is fair, and such crossroads were the favored sites of the wanton women, witches, and the grand masters or Masonic sorcerers who were her votaries. Crossroads were and are of significance to ritual sex magic. The wearing of clothes of the opposite sex and the performance of bisexual acts are so-called crossroad rites. The women engaging in these perversions were, in the vernacular, referred to as dykes and it was said that they travelled the Old Dyke Road and the Old Dirt Road. These sorts of activities are extremely secret in keeping with the lore of Hecate, as illustrated in the saying Tacitesc paeobins concium sacris jubar Hecate Triformus, which translates to Triple Hecate, who giveth forth rays cognizant and of secret mysteries. Crossroads were also places of human and animal sacrifice, and such rites were often carried out in conjunction with Magica Sexualis, since the participants recognized an existing relationship between fertility and death. Hecate is therefore also identified as a death goddess, and her sex and death attributes are similar to those ascribed to Venus, also known as Aphrodite, Bronae, and Cyprus. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. The crossroads idea. Very important idea. Ritualistic place, you see. So, if you go back to the old blues song about the crossroads, and going to the crossroads and these kind of ideas, you understand there's something more esoteric being talked about there. If you go back and listen to the story of what happened to Marie Curie's husband down at the crossroads, you'll know that there's something encoded in that story. You see, all of these different connotations that can be pulled out of various aspects of our everyday reality and our historical narratives can be used as context clues to understand that there's something else going on in that story. This is the, the nature of the esoteric way of things. This is the nature of this synchromistic metadata. So you could reflect back on those and understand that there's something being obscured in that story. There's something that's not being told to us. There's a hidden underlying meaning to that story. That is what's called the green language of Freemasonry. The Language of the Birds. The phonetic Kabbalah. There's hidden ideas in the symbols represented there. If it's a story about the crossroads, well, Downer just gave us a little bit of context here to be able to understand that there was something ritualistic going on there. There's an occult tie to all of it. And it has to do with bending your mind in a certain way, you see. So once you can make these connections and start to see some of these certain symbols cropping up here and there and understand certain things about them, then you have a better idea of what's been done to manipulate your mind in certain ways. And this is absolutely one of the the tells here. And we'll see how it relates to everything else as we go on. But he tied this back to Macbeth, and he tied it to the connection to Kennedy's assassination in many ways, as we'll see as we go further. But next, Macabird. The idea for the play McBird possibly originated as an anti-war rally in Berkeley, California when Barbara Garson, in a speech referred to the then First Lady of the United States as Lady McBird Johnson, subsequently she is said to have decided to write a play based on Shakespeare's Macbeth and to have it performed at the International Day of Protest. But it actually had its premiere at the Village Gate Theater in Greenwich Village, New York. <clears throat> Excuse me. Newspaper publisher William Loeb charged the Garsons McBird, implies that President Lyndon Johnson and Mrs. Johnson were conspiratorial involved in the JFK assassination.
1: I'm gonna pause for a second here, folks. Let's read that again.
0: Newspaper publisher William Loeb charged that Garson's McBird implies that President Lyndon Johnson and Mrs. Johnson were conspiratorially involved in the JFK assassination. Loeb asked his newspaper's attorney, quote, to research immediately if there is any action this newspaper can take to ask the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York to request the appropriate court to issue an injunction against the further showing of McBird. Newspapers throughout the country took up the cry, and a drama critic from United Press International wrote, McBird, presented yesterday at the village gate, is a sophomoric heavy-handed parody of Macbeth that strikes a new low in theatrical taste. (coughs) The word sophomore is derived from the Greek words sophos, meaning wise, and moros, meaning foolish. Granted, it seemed foolish for Barbara Garcon to challenge the system with the play McBird, but let us see if there's anything shrewd, astute, or erudite about the Barbara Garcon parody, as well as if it displays any occult knowledge. In the words of Erasmus, can Barbara Garcon be said to be a morosopher, a wise fool? And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, so keep that in mind. This is another important context clue that can be applied to other places. The word sophomore or "sophomoric." What does it mean? It comes from the Greek words sophos, meaning wise, and moros, meaning foolish, wise and foolish. This is the union of the two polar opposites, as talked about earlier here. You see the unification of these two opposite aspects of things which the masons see themselves as being the conduit for many of these secret society groups this is the whole goal of these various orders is to unify the fire and the water as we alluded to earlier the opposites <coughs> the wise and the foolish so that's why the connections being made here <coughs> But let's read on. President Lyndon Baines Johnson's name is phonetically linked to the Macbeth clan. Clansmen were divided into two classes, those who were related by blood, and those individuals and groups who were under clan protection. Consequently, clans had sects of different appellations and people with the same surname are known to have been attached to different clans. The Macbeth clan is related in a clannish manner to the Bane clan. The lack of clear distinctions between blood relatives and those under clan protection in Scottish genealogy has become so complex as to baffle expert genealogists who are not at all positive as to who begat or protected whom. Numerous Scottish names are rendered with a variety of spellings, and it is a matter of record that the sons of many Scotsmen spelled their names differently from their fathers. With this in mind, consider a clan listing having to do with the Bane and Macbeth clan structure. The listing, although it cannot be considered fully comprehensive, is considered somewhat more authentic than other clan lists. And he gives a list here. Of different names that are associated with the Macbeth clan Bane, McBean, McKay, McNab, Bane, McBean again with different spellings, all different spellings. McKay, McNab, Bean, McBean, Beatty, Macbeth, Binny McBean, McBean, McBain, MacBean, Macbeth, MacBean, Mac, Melvin Macbeth so these are all different names that are related to the Macbeth clan in the Scottish genealogies and this is important because he does talk about names being important here and the names associated here so Lyndon Baines, Johnson Bain being related to Macbeth you see so being a part of the Macbeth clan in the Scottish genealogy, there's a connection there. So maybe he did have a tie of some sort to the Kennedy assassination, as many people have speculated. And this would lend credence to that idea. So he gives this list of names here as having the, these clans all publicly claim to have the same ancestor. The Banes, is keeping with the name exchange, are apt to refer to the same clan, even though the spelling may be different, as has sometimes appeared. All of these are in a clan structure with Macbeth. Bane means, among other things, quote, any fatal cause of mischief, injury, or destruction, end quote, the Bean clan is also conspicuous in the Banes Macbeth genealogy. Bean is a name given to several kinds of leguminous seeds, and is a synonym for the word fairy. There exists in Scottish legend a Bane fairy, which was considered a death fairy, and is said to have called on the Macbeth clan. There are other legends pertaining to the Bane bridge, Old tellers of this ancient bridge story maintained that the Bane Fairy was the keeper of the Bane Bridge. The Bane Bridge, therefore, has a death fairy guardian, which may also be present in the depiction of a troop of performers in the painting of The Dance Macabre, that is on the ceiling of a spewer brook, a covered bridge that crosses the Reuss River at an abstruse angle at Lucerne, Switzerland. Lucerne is Latin for lantern. At the same at the point of the angle in midstream lies a tower in which a large lantern is prominently hung. From time to time the tower light has been known to shine on members of the Dance Macabre painting. Perhaps then certain of them are expected to make an appearance and take their bows on the stage of life. <clears throat> The Bainbridge story is also interesting in connection with the American battleship Bainbridge, which was dedicated by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Because I have only read government reports about the Bainbridge and viewed pictures of it, I cannot say that such a ship indeed was or is afloat, but since the Bainbridge is symbolically a harbinger of death, I mention it in connection with this study President Lyndon Baines Johnson, through the magic of mystery and words, is associated with the Bane being Macbeth, as the reader can certainly understand now. Bane in French means, among other things, bath. There are obviously many different types of baths, sweat baths, mineral water baths, champagne baths, milk baths, blood baths, baptismal baths, the resurrection bath of alchemy denoting rebirth and purification, or absolution baths given before the performance of heinous deeds, such as the baths given to the Masonic Knights of the Bath. So there are many ritual aspects to the bath. For example, when he was vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson of Bloodbath Association removed his shoes before entering a Muslim bathhouse reminiscent of the rite of discalciation in the third degree of masonry having to do with assassination. There are, of course, some plot discrepancies between the tragedy of Macbeth and the tragedy of John Kennedy, but then this, too, is somewhat typical. A very queer sorceress strategy of the Masons is to plot murders using assassins who can be accused of murdering Masons, and on the other, are actually those who murder anti-Masons or symbolical scapegoats at Masonic behest. This name is as unusual as the coincidence and in folding of the Macbeth-Kennedy tragedies in which, in the former Macbeth murders, King Duncan will in the latter, a certain Robert Duncan of skirling bagpipes fame, befriends Lyndon Baines Johnson and supports his bloody Vietnam policy. An explanation of this combination of name reversal, and the interplay of spontaneity with preconceived patterns is at the core of a Masonic legend about three men, Squindeflexion of Beziers, France, Nofidae of Florence, and a third unknown man who made accusations against the Order of the Knights Templar, which resulted in their downfall. These three alleged accusers of Templarism are also identified as Masonic assassins. There were numerous accusers of this order whose testimonies caused it to be both abolished, as orthodox history records. It is quite apparent that the attempt to establish three men as accusers and then to equate them with the infamous three assassins in masonry has symbolical significance in the legend or plot of the third-degree assassination. Another peculiar incident in the legend deals with the hanging of Maragini, a man who supposedly aided squindeflexion. Miragini was hanged at Montfaucon by order of Louis X some two years after the suppression of the Knights Templar. This was an act of revenge perpetrated through Templar treachery. The revenge they took was of a symbolical character. In the change of the legend of the third degree into that of the Templar system, when the martyred James de Molay was substituted for Hiram Abiff, the three assassins were represented by Squin deflexion, Flexion, and the Unknown as there is really no reference in the historical records of the persecution of to the third accuser, it is most probable that he is altogether a mythical personage invented merely to complete the triad of assassins and to preserve the congruity of the Templar with the Masonic legend. The unfortunate Maragini became a victim as a result of a plot change in the Templar third-degree legend and became symbolically synonymous with one of the three assassins and was therefore executed. Certainly neither Morosopher Barbara Garçon or anyone else could be expected to imagine that LBJ's friend Duncan might have some symbolical association with the King Duncan of the Macbeth tragedy in relation to the magic and mystery of words. It was change of legend time. And we're going to stop right there for tonight, folks. You see, the connections here are numerous and we're going to get a little further on in part two we're gonna pick up there for part two of this because i do intend to do a part two because there's so many connections that can be made but notice that the ties back to shakespeare in the context of assassination and these various things these are the same calling cards that are played. Do you remember a couple years back that mass shooting event that happened in Las Vegas, Paddock? You remember that name? There's an association made with Shakespeare in that setup as well, and that still remains a mystery today as to the the reasoning behind it. Or the motive behind all of it. And the whole thing is very much convoluted. The whole story. And it's still unsolved today. And it's kind of disappeared out of the mainstream. For a number of reasons. Because, in my view, it looked like a type of ritual. And it seems like they kind of got caught in the ritual. And they backpedaled a little bit on what was going on. And they couldn't provide enough context to close out the mainstream narrative, so they backed away from it and had it disappear from the news cycle. But these connections are made all over the place, and this is the same type of connection that connects back to the Kennedy assassination. The use of the trope of Shakespeare being a playbook of sorts to connect different ideas and different genealogies and things like that to it. Through these synchro mystic connections, these synchro mystic metadata connections, and we see that Downard was really good at pointing these things out. So, that being the case, we will continue next time looking at this next tr- point in the trail that Downard points out, and we'll Explore a little further down the rabbit hole here because it's going to take a while to connect all these dots together. It's going to take longer than one program here to put it all together. So we'll continue on, and in part two, we'll throw together some more of the connections. But remember the key important factors here tonight, the important takeaways that you could learn through this. The ability to identify these synchromistic metadata patterns, to be able to identify a start point for them, and trace them in various ways through the names, primarily, as Downer did here. He identified the names, broke down the etymological meanings of the names, associated them back to various genealogies and such as that, and connections to some of the classics in literature, and was able to connect the dots and see associations here within the Freemasonic maternities. A lot of this has to do with their ritual practices and their initiation ceremonies as well, many times. So the more you learn about that, the better informed you'll be as to the nature of many of these things they present to us. And this is the important takeaway here. So, There's so many connections that Downard makes in this book, it's hard to fit it all in one program. So I'm going to do a part two for sure with this and we'll explore further down this rabbit trail because this gets pretty deep and you'll see how all the connections interrelate and I find it a little bit too numerous, all these connections, for it to be merely coincidence as most people would slough it off as. So that being the case, you could see this very real trail of synchromystic metadata that connects all of these different things into this overall fabric of the event, how it's been orchestrated, planned out, presented to us, and consumed by the public, you see. And all the ideas are there. They're inherent in what's gone on. It's all part of what's called the revelation of the method. We were meant, intended, to be able to discover many of these things years after the fact, to understand what's been done, because it's all part of their big spell. You see, it gives them the satisfaction of knowing that they have this power over us, and it's supposed to reinforce the idea in our minds that they have power over us and nothing could be further from the truth folks we have our own sovereignty we are more powerful than we think they don't want us to discover that you see and that's one of the main reasons that they use this type of revelation of the method when we get close to something like this and we begin to understand what they've done They want us to think, wow, these people, they're all powerful. Boy, how could they put all this together? They know some things that we don't, and they have this power over our minds that we don't even hardly understand. Well, once you begin to see through their facades, they have less power over you, and you have more power over yourself. And they don't want people to discover that. And that's why they suppress many of these ideas. Because you see, if this remains something archetypal in the human mind, something unconscious that man doesn't recognize on a conscious level, then it will affect his behavior. It will affect him in many ways that he doesn't understand how or why. And in so doing, they could establish control over you using these cybernetics type methodologies with the use of these old, old occult mind control sciences. They've become very good at this, you see, and using these various aspects of reality against us that we have very little understanding of. So it's a a tool that they've leveraged against us, and that's the important thing to keep in mind. And they, they set up all of this stuff And have all these connections in place to reinforce their ritual. That's what Revelation of the Method is all about. It's reinforcement of the ritual after the fact to re-empower the goal that they have set with it. That's what it's about when you want to get down to the magical or mystical context of it all. So anyway, folks, that's the end of part one. We will do a part two of this where we will explore more of these ideas. I hope I didn't lose you partway through with much of this stuff because sometimes it gets a little difficult to follow if you're thinking in the way we've been trained by modern society. But if you could think outside the box and have an understanding of more philosophical type things, of more philosophical ways of thinking, then I think you could follow along with the context here and be able to read the clues and understand what's being presented. So I appreciate all of you tuning in. I want to thank you for all listening. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.
1: Come with me